must push the button. You have no idea what it is. Talking Tech with the Techie Guy, Leroy Seger, on CliffCentral.com. Okay, welcome to another episode of Talking Tech on CliffCentral.com and this show is sponsored by MTN Business. Why do we need just uh, why do we need to worry just about everything in the digital world today? So we need to put the, to worry about protecting your data. Well, MTN Business has the solution, something that can look after your bottom line, grow your top line and safeguard your data. That's MTN Business Cloud. MTN Business Cloud has been created to build African businesses and is powered by the world's leading cloud solutions from Microsoft. Big and small businesses can benefit from true hybrid solutions, leveraging on MTN's global network. For more information, email sales at mtnbusiness.co.za or visit mtnbusiness.co.za. That's sales at mtnbusiness.coza or go directly to the website mtnbusiness.co.za. Welcome to the new world of business. I have a big company with many sites across Africa, each needing a hefty investment in hardware and software. And it's such a waste. So many resources are unused for most of the month. You need MTN Business Cloud, powered by Microsoft technology. Our scalable solution enables you to manage your infrastructure, which allows you to buy exactly what you need. With a footprint covering over 23 countries, isn't it time you found out about the cloud solution built to build African businesses? Welcome to the new world of business. Right, guys, today we have a very, very different episode because we are allowed outside the studio. We actually, they do give us a pass every once in a while. And we're actually down in beautiful Cape Town at the Gartner Symposium. And today we're talking about all things tech, but we're talking about all things tech being practical and real. And who better to do this with than the guys from Gartner? So we've got two gentlemen in the studio, in our makeshift studio, I might add. Um, and we're going to introduce themselves, and then we'll get kind of cracking. There are a lot of questions you guys have been filing in throughout the course of the week, so we'll get to get to all of them. So as usual, feel free to reach out. So my Twitter handle is at Leron underscore S-E-G-E-V, alternatively cliffcentral.com, or the WeChat ID is still live is cliffcentral is the official account. You can obviously send us messages to screen. So, gentlemen, welcome. Welcome to Cape Town. Thank you. Um, right, nice to have you here. So I think let's start. Each one, introduce yourselves, who you are, what are you doing? Okay, uh, my name is Brian Burke. I'm a research vice president at Gartner. I'm based in um, Andorra, and my areas of coverage are gamification and enterprise architecture. Cool. Uh, and my name is uh, Glenn Archer. I'm also a research vice president with Gartner. I'm based in uh, Canberra, Australia, focusing on primarily uh, digital government. Okay, so welcome to South Africa. Uh, not, you. not your first trip, I'm assuming? No. It is, it is mine. It's your first trip? Okay. Is it everything that's proven out to be? It's Have you got shot yet? <laughs> What's taking so long? <laughs> no, no you're okay? It's a, it's a beautiful city, Cape Town. No, Cape Town's great, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and yourself? I've been to, uh, to South Africa many times, okay. many, many times. So, so yeah. you, you, know, you know the story, right? I know the story. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right, guys. Um, so, now, we, you know, leading up to the kind of the Gartner Symposium, we've had a whole bunch of the innovators which have got their stand right outside, outside here, where a lot of guys have been presenting their tech solutions. Because at the end of the day, Africa is Africa. It's not the rest of the world. We do have our own limitations and our own, and our own issues. And I think we'd like to kind of to start jumping into the into those things. Um, you've mentioned the word gamification, and everybody lit up because that's been the question that's been filing through the most. So I think maybe can we can we can we kick it off there? And I suppose we can all jump in and just have a say and. Um, let's talk gaming. Right? Sure, let's talk about gamification. Okay, so gamifications. Um, I thought let's start defining the term before we, you know, all these geeks get excited about the latest 
Laura Croft game or something. Yeah. Right, what's gamification went from a gardener's point of view? Okay, well, you know, let me first of all say gamification has very little to do with games. Um, it has a lot more to do I with... I think we just lost a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry about that. It has a lot more to do with uh, behavioral science, uh, motivational science, and really what gamification is, is it's how we, using game mechanics, so things like points and leaderboards, we're digitally engaging and motivating people uh, to help them to achieve their own goals. And so, um, you know, it, it uses some of the elements of games, so game mechanics, but yeah. it's really more about motivation and helping people to achieve their goals. Yeah. And, and this is something that, that you're, it's not for the home user. I mean, this is effectively for your corporate, your enterprise, um, who's trying to kind of motivate your staff to do something um, you know, is, is, that, is that the case? Well, I think that you know, it, gamification touches a, a bunch of different audiences. So, yes, it is for your home user. And if actually people want, you know, an example of what gamification is, uh, Nike Plus, uh, so right. you know, Nike Running and sure. all of the Nike accessories, uh, that they use points and trophies and things like that to motivate athletes to achieve their goals. So that's okay. that's an example of consumer-facing gamification. But there's different spaces: employee, consumer, customer, uh, communities of interest, different different target target audiences. Okay, and are you finding that that, that it's, there's some commonalities like across the world is it, when it comes to gamifications, or is every country, every corporate dif- different? There is uh, certainly some commonalities uh, across the world and it, that span age groups and 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 cultures, which is um, virtually everybody can be motivated to to help them to achieve their goals. The way that gamification is positioned is it depends uh, to a great extent on the audience. Uh, so if you're targeting a young audience, you may use a different approach versus you know targeting a more mature audience. And one of the, I guess, the unique regional differences is that um, the further east you go, so as you move you know from the west to through to India and east of there, uh, gamification, the way that it's designed, tends to look a lot like a game, um, even though it's using the same mm. kind of uh, background. So, so there's more of a game-like interface as you move east, and I have no explanation for why that is. It just is. It just is. But that's just the way it is. Yeah. And again, from your side, are you finding that as well, that, um, kind of, that gamification changes as you've encountered it? Have you encountered gamification in your travels? So certainly it's an area which uh, government is starting to express an interest in in, in trying to improve the, uh, the user experience when dealing with government services. Uh, so testing and, and uh, evaluating the quality of the experience using uh, gamification concepts. So more kind of more of encouraging customers, better customer service. The better you do, the more points you earn. Maybe you earn yourself a voucher for something, right? <laughs> something along those lines. So I, I guess governments are more interested in how the quality of the services that they deliver, whether or not the program is getting the right outcome. So you know, t- in terms of testing that experience, and you know, we see an, a, a kind of evolution playing out across the world now around how governments are crafting their. Uh, the provision of their services from, you know, the classical kind of uh, e-government scenario where you've got, you know, the standard portal with the transactions on the portal through to the kind of digital and smart government arena. But particularly in the latter, uh, we see, you know, gamification used as a a concept to try and improve the way in which those services are crafted and and, and designed. Uh, I mean, for for South Africa specifically... um you know, a lot of the e-government stuff is, has been talked about. Certainly, has been talked about. It's a lot of been in, in the pipeline, and certainly certain areas have improved a lot over over time. Obviously, others are very much lacking, like the lack of power, for example. I mean, I think they should get a 
bonus point every time we have an ability to switch on a light bulb. I'm just just saying, put it out there. I think it's a good idea. Maybe there's like three points to be given. It'd be awesome. Um, so, but from a from a government um, becoming smarter kind of point of view, um, what what are kind of the big trends that are happening um, in, around the world? Well, I used the word evolution uh, earlier, and that's very much what we see. Um, you know, there are kind of five sort of sort of phases of, of government, in, and e-government is the first phase, which is very much focused on the transactional portal, um, trying to uh, improve the efficiency of government by moving transactions onto online, uh, and of course on the on a mobile uh, platform. Uh, and you know, the, the focus of, uh, uh, is about trying to get the maximum number of, of utilization of, of, of the electronic channel uh, really to kind of take the, the heat and the demand off the other channels, the call centers right. and the face-to-face. And that's kind of the first phase. And, and you move through sort of, you know, the open data era uh, through to eventually kind of smart government uh, and, di- and digital government. And what differentiates the kind of e-government to digital government um, uh, experience is really the degree to which you have all the data in a digital format. So in an e-government era, you, you, have, you, do, you tend to target the sort of low-hanging fruit, right. those high-volume transactions sure. which are short and sharp and allow a citizen or a, or a, or a business to interact with government quite quickly um, uh, as, as they need to. And as, in a smart government and a digital government arena, you are focused really on, on, on uh, delivering all services uh, through a digital form factor or a digital pathway, um, and increasingly the automation of those services. So, in fact, you know, one of the predictions that we often find as being surprising to our clients is that uh, as you move into smart government, you'll actually see a decline in the utilisation of your website. Right. And the reason for that is that you will have be able to capture that data in other forms. Mm-hmm. So where once upon a time you might have done a tax return, lo- you know, logged in and registered right. a tax return, in smart government that will happen automatically. And we see countries that have already moved to that to that point. But uh, to, are there companies, countries that have moved completely to smart, to 100% kind of uh, online? There are certainly countries uh, such as Singapore, right. uh, you know, which, uh, which have moved to that, have achieved that kind of digital government um, 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 threshold, and others are clearly a long way to go, right? And, uh, well, I think you know I, there's a lot of focus on this as they see it as a sort of almost like a rugby match. <laughs> That's where you want to go there. <laughs> no, we don't. Uh, so um, you know that, that it's a competitive thing, and right. you know one of my most common questions I get asked by clients is how can we do better? How can we get a sure. better score than other countries? Right. And uh, so, um, uh, but uh, really, at the end of the game. At the end of the day, that shouldn't be the point. The issue for government is about achieving a better outcome for their citizens and the businesses that they support, and from government, doing so more efficiently and being able to make better use of government resources and taxpayer dollars. Okay, so I can clearly see your first time to South Africa because our government... Uh, and we clearly not that should be listening to this podcast please let's make sure somebody gets them a copy um, because this is the, believe it or not the stuff is happening out there people just not here yet okay yeah I'd, let me just add into that you know while we're on the topic of government um, I've just done some research written a research note on uh, on how actually democracies are changing uh, because of the internet and um, what we're seeing is, is the start of a movement towards an, what we call an internet direct democracy uh, and the way that's working is that in 
uh, particularly in countries uh, where there is a lot of unhappiness with the government. Government, um, so a lot the perception of high levels of corruption, high unemployment, things like that. Um, they seem to be ripe for. Mm. Uh, these kind of internet direct democracies. Now, those are countries, let me give you two very specific s examples. In Spain and in Italy, uh, there are parties that are emerging that are um, really being directed by the party members. So they're actually, the party members vote, uh, propose legislation, develop legislation, vote for legislation, and the elected representatives have to vote the way the party members right. direct them. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a hybrid between a representative democracy and a direct democracy, and we call it internet, internet direct democracy, but it's gaining power with uh, the um, five-star movement in Italy that has, is the second largest party, uh, and upcoming in Spain in the December elections, Podemos, which is another of these mm. parties, uh, looks set to to garner uh, a fairly decent share of, of the vote as well. So I think there's some interesting things that are happening in terms of, not only in terms of, you know, as Glenn was saying, the government delivering services to the people, but also the people directing the government in terms of what's important to them. So, I mean, so, so it's all about kind of the power, I suppose, uh, and kind of giving people... You know, we, we know the theory. The theory is the government works for the people and are supposed to do and represent what the people want. Um, that's great to get elected and it's an awesome speech and yes we can and all that good stuff and then once you're in, once you're in government though is it then it becomes a disconnect um, you know what and, and again it, they are dealing with legacy system and historical um, you know, laws and regulations that don't change as quickly as people would like them to change so this internet this whole electronic thing is that changing that I, I, yeah. I absolutely, I believe it is. I mean, you know, it's quite clear that social media has had profound effects on, you know, uh, on on governments across the world, uh, including them losing office. Sure. Um, and so, you know, uh, Gartner has this concept of the nexus of forces, and social and social media is one of the four nexus of forces, along with mobile cloud and, and the other thing. Social, mobile, cloud, and information. And information. How could I forget your details? <laughs> At the end of the day, uh, information, you know, analytics and data sure. are the fundamental underpinnings of, of, of digital government, the fact that you have got all, data, all the data in a digital format. But I think the, the more that you've got of those, of those four pieces of that, of, of that pie, um, the better you can, you can be. I mean, if you've got access to that information, you can make real decisions with real-time, you know, with the real-time information, um, and be and be kind of guarded by the people. And, and that's an, ex an excellent segue into the Internet of Things, because it's the Internet of Things that sits over the top of that that provides you the source of that real-time data. Okay, so let's let's just pause for a second and define this Internet of Things, because there's a lot of miscommunication, misrepresentations, um, depending who's trying to sell you what. <laughs> um, and I suppose to get any, you know, I always say to get any budget approved these days, you just put IoT on the top, and nobody really understands it, and therefore you must have it, very much like security used to be in the days. What is the Internet of Things? Okay. Well, it's a, you know, it's really an extension of, of a trend that's been, been happening for, for some time. But let me, so let me, let me kind of define what that is. Um, <clears throat> it is uh, really the explosion of devices that are being connected to the Internet. Now, those devices, um, we started, I said, this trend has been going for a while. We started with, you know, very high-value devices like MRI machines being connected to the Internet for maintenance scheduling and so on and so forth. They report when they have, uh, have, have uh, a technical issue. 
Uh, but now, because of the cost of connectivity is coming down, and the, in, in particularly the cost of sensors as well is coming down, um, more and more, every sort of asset of any value at all is becoming connected to the internet. So that's why we're getting this explosion of things connected to the internet. And so it goes, you know, sort of traditionally we thought of what was connected to the internet as being our mobile phones, our laptops, and, and our tablets. Now it's our, you know, our Fitbits and our Apple Watches and, the, you know, sensors in our insoles and uh, sensors around buildings that are monitoring temperature and lighting and smart appliances and connected cars and the list just goes <laughs> on and on and on. And so that's really what the Internet of Things is about is all of these things that were never connected before that are now becoming connected to the Internet. Okay, which is Candice's question, which says, yes, great, what about privacy and obviously what about security? Now, do we really need to know what I'm up to at 3 a.m. Uh, because my Fitbit is connected or are we losing that? It's probably the number one concern, security, uh, around the Internet of Things. And just to give you an example, uh, there's been you know a couple of dozen uh, stories and cases lately uh, about people who've been been able to hack into baby monitors. Now, this, this is like a creepy, scary thing. Yeah. So you've got somebody on the other side of the world who's hacked into your baby monitor because you haven't changed the password from the default, and they're able to move the camera around the room, talk to your baby, very, very creepy stuff. Um, so but does security become an issue? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, fun, the, fundamental, the fundamental problem here is the, the lack of standards for IoT-based devices. The fact that, you know, this, at the moment we've got a plethora of manufacturers making IoT devices but all adopting different standards. So trying to craft security and, 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 and other controls and how you do an operating system upgrade to an right. IoT device sure. is incredibly problematic. And it's the, 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 real, uh, the person facing the biggest challenge here is, in fact, the CIO of, the, of that organisation because they're having to weld together information flowing at them from multiple devices but also made by multiple manufacturers with different protocols and different standards. So, so standardization is, again, kind of something that's going to bite us in the ass, effectively. That's what it boils down to. And, and the standards bodies have started working on this, and security is one of the things that they'll focus but on they have early to keep on. It. Yeah. I, you know, the problem is we all have machines, and they constantly are being software updated, uh, but amazingly the amount of people who say, I don't need this, and simply don't update their software, and then they go and uh, they get hacked eventually, and they go cry because they're saying, no, this operating system is broken. But it isn't. I mean, if you haven't changed your default password, um, which is something that you should be doing off the bat, uh, really, I mean, these are kind of bog standard. But at the end of the day, people still are just not following. You know, nobody reads the damn manual. Okay. Um, so unless you're force-feeding them that as you switch it on, the first thing it does is prompt you for a password change, People just simply don't do it. Mm. And, and this is the layman. But we've also seen the technical guys who have got routers who are still installed with the default password because this thing was never meant to be internet-facing. Mm. But and eventually it becomes internet-facing. And one thing we know about tech is that documentation really sucks. And, uh, you know, that nobody keeps those up. Um, so you just don't know. Um, are we not worried that things like your smart TV is just not going to be updated and therefore at a certain point somebody will hack your baby monitor and will hack your cams into your TV and kind of watch what you're doing I'll, in your house. I'll give you a scarier scenario. Uh, at the moment we've got IoT devices being uh, put into bridges to monitor the stress on those bridges. Right. Uh, you know, the lifespan of the average bridge is about 100 years. 
when was the last time you put a, a, an IT device into, uh, and, and assumed that you'd never actually have to maintain it for 100 years? Uh, up, yeah. up, upgrade its op- operating system. Or, that's that's Absolutely. a completely foreign concept. And yet we don't kind of have the management practices um, to cope with that sort of uh, model at this time. So is that something that people are focusing on? I mean, from from a CIO level, from I mean, cause at the end of the day, it's their job. Yeah. But, um, um, so they're supposed to do it because that's what they're getting paid to do. But equally importantly, a lot of the CTOs, CIOs are getting fired when um, you know when the information starts to leak, and typically it does boil down to the fact that one device wasn't registered into the network, it wasn't part of the MDM solutions, uh, it was left on a train and it, and it was used as a way to get to get through. So are these guys not worried about kind of the future of where we, or, or, or where we're living at the moment? I, you know, I think that it is one of their very top key concerns. Um, and yes, there's, there's all kinds of risks out there. And, and, and as Glenn mentions, the, the tools are not um, as sophisticated as the people who are trying yeah. to hack into them. Uh, in many, many cases. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, we're asking people, the public, to be system administrators that they were never trained to do. So they never think about changing passwords on their, on the routers and things like that. So there is, there is, um, huge issues, uh, with, with that today. What we'll see, um, is that, you know, from a corporate perspective, um, security needs to move from being focused on, you know, block and protect, uh, to becoming more, um, predict and prevent. Uh, so we need to get further mm. out in terms of how we're looking at um, access to systems. We'll look at you know analyzing behaviors and understanding you know when those anomalies are occurring in behaviors and, and trying to look at that more proactively. Um, integrating security tools into the development cycle of our um, systems so that we you know they're they're, they're uh, integrated with security and then moving out uh, to through uh, diagnostics and testing and ultimately into production where we've got real-time monitoring of, of solutions so you know the the holes are getting right. pl- plugged <laughs> but <laughs> are things going to get missed absolutely, absolutely. right yeah. Uh, so I think it's those things that get missed that, that, that are the things that keep you awake at night. I mean, I've, I've been a CIO in three separate um, uh, instances in the Australian government, and security w- was the thing that worried me uh, probably the most. Sure. Uh, and but, but at the end of the day, you know, in terms of you know career pr- pr- protection, um, if you uh, ensured that the right practices were in place and that you were maintaining and patching all of your your servers and making sure the firewalls were up to date and such things. Um, you know, if you could demonstrate you were doing a thorough and complete job as a CIO, then I think it was defensible. Um, the, the real challenge you face is when you get that, that aberrant um, behaviour by, you know, one individual who doesn't follow through or you've got some odd, odd hole that was unknown. But, it, but it, it's, a, it's the equivalent of, a, like a, I suppose, a terror attack. You know, you've got to be, you've got to be defensive 100% of the time. Yes. They just got to get lucky once, yeah. uh, and, and that's kind of the the age that that, that we're living in, where we've got to be constantly on the defensive. We used to be reactive, but now we're actually proactive as well with honeypots and all that good stuff to try and kind of be that one step ahead. But they're still very well funded, and today's bank robbery isn't going to be someone walking to a branch with an AK-47 and holding it up because there is no money in the vault. The money is in ones and zeros somewhere out there on the internet. There's a lot of that's a simple way of doing it. Um, Angie sends a, an interesting note here, and, and it's something that's really worrying. It says, I don't care about my password. Anyone can read my mail. I've got nothing to hide. So are we worried about kind of today's youth who's kind of tweeting and Instagramming and Snapchatting and Facebooking 
everything that they do. And as much as we tell them one day you'll need a job, believe it or not, and this stuff's going to come up. But they don't seem to care. Aren't these the next kind of CEOs of companies or the next startups or... Or is somebody going to catch a wake up at a point? <laughs> I'm just wondering if Angie doesn't have doesn't bank online. But uh, yeah, what is your uh, Angie? If you're still listening, um, we just want your pin just to double check what you're up to, okay? Because you said you got nothing to hide. If you don't mind, we'll we'll just give you a quick security audit. In, cl- click this link now. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, these guys are the ones who are going to be leaving school, going to university, creating some sort of a weird startup that you can order a car with your phone, like an Uber. But they don't have a security mindset, like I suppose you know, some of us do. Uh, my first email address was, you know, you couldn't give out your name at hotmail.com because somebody couldn't know who you are. And it was like the anonymizers were the big thing that you had to use. Um, they don't care. I mean, at the end of the day, how many password one, two, threes are still out there? Lots. Absolutely. So isn't that an yeah. issue for us? You know, I think that, um, well, when we look at it from a consumer's perspective, you know, certainly uh, they are leaving themselves open to... For obvious reasons, yeah. For obvious reasons. <laughs> that's, 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 that's an individual choice right. uh, that people make. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, um, the, you know, it's absolutely true that today's generation is not as concerned about security and privacy as as um, as a lot of people my age are. Uh, but I think that you know what we'll see is the, those those uh, people will mature as they mature in years. They will also mature uh, in the things that they need to protect. Uh, and uh, when they have you know bank accounts and visa cards and those kinds of things that uh, can be lost and cost a lot of money. Um, they'll see probably more reasons to protect those things. Uh, I suppose when it hits you in your pocket, yeah. you very quickly wise up. Yeah. Uh, right now when dad pays your account, it's not a big deal. But when you're paying your own way, yeah. um, we think, kind of... There's, there's also not just your pocket. If you think about the Ashley Madison uh, sure. incident, um, you know, there are various reasons for where you know, compromising your mm-hmm. own personal security can, can, be, you know, can be damaging. In, in, in all ways, right? In all ways. <laughs> um, which, is a, which is a cool question to get to after our, our break. Um, Mark wants to know about a cashless society. We've been hearing about these a lot. Um, and Peza is quite a good example from Africa. Um, with, with Nobody really carries money these days. Um, but we do have a million cell phones so we can make payments to each other. So is this a real thing? Is this re- re- the world's going? We'll attack that after the break. Our clients are the lifeblood of our business, and keeping their data safe is critical. I'm worried that client data in the wrong hands could cost us. With MTN Business Cloud powered by Microsoft Technology, your data is secured in world-class data centers based in South Africa. It's always available, backed up, and complies with South African laws, ensuring that you and your clients are always protected. With a footprint covering 23 countries, isn't it time you found out about the cloud solution built to build African businesses? Welcome to the new world of business. Talking Tech. With the Techie Guy, Elon Segev, on techcentral.com. And we are back. So we, you, know, you might be able to hear some background noise, and that's because we're not in studio today. We're actually live at the Gartner Symposium, which is happening in Cape Town. Um, and we're here with um, Brian, and we're here with, uh, with Glenn as well. And these guys are from, from Gartner. So I suppose, Glenn, um, or, and Art, I suppose, um, uh, give us a quick overview of what is Gartner Symposium, and, and, and maybe, Brian, you want to start with that. Why is it in Cape Town, and why, why, why are we here? 
Sure. Um, well, Gartner Symposium is, is really the largest gathering of CIOs uh, and IT leaders in the world. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's Gartner's premier event. Uh, we run this in eight different locations uh, around the world, um, attracting thousands of, of CIOs and IT leaders at, at all of those locations. This year, um, we have Cape Town uh, as the kickoff for Symposium. So, yeah, so we're doing it for the first time here. Um, and then we, we go off around the world. Next week is Orlando. So it's a, it's a big event. And, and is it always the same kind of same format that happens around the world? It similar okay. format. Uh, clearly, we adjust for the audience size and you know uh, regional topics and things like that. But uh, very similar format overall. And, and and do you do you attract the same the same kind of audience? Is it a C level? Is it ex- an executive level specifically? Uh, Symposium is targeted, focused specifically on CIOs, and um, we expand that to CIOs and IT leaders, right. really their they're, they're, uh, they're direct reports. Uh, and so it's focused on the topics that are most important to CIOs and those IT leaders, and so it's really focused at the, the upper management level within IT. Well, I say within IT, but within IT and the business, we get chief marketing officers, chief sure. digital officers, and lots of people from uh, folks from the business as well coming. I suppose it all blends. It all blends into one. I mean, it, it used to be clearly defined. Your texts were the texts. They just kept the lights on. They kept your email flowing. You could surf your port if you wanted to, and and as long as that was working, nobody complained. But slowly over the years, the tech have taken kind of a much better position in the company, and they're taking a seat around the executive boardroom table these days. I think the CIO today is seen as a, as a strategic uh, member of the executive um, mm. leadership group within most uh, large organisations. And so the important role of IT in underpinning, underpinning the operation of the, of the business or of the government entity uh, has risen to the point where you know, they, they, are, they do command that degree of respect um, uh, from, from the leadership team. No, it, it, it's always the funny thing is when they say we don't need this technology as soon as you say you'll switch it off for an hour, amazingly, you know, hands go up and go, no, 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 don't do that. Um, we, we don't realize just how much we rely on this technology. Um, and everything's been taken for granted. Though, you know, that of course, I'm going to get mail. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what kind of occasion? You know, we have the symposium and we have a working Wi-Fi. Well, yes. <laughs> you know, you, you should be having working Wi-Fi or, 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 or an ability to connect to something, right? Yeah. Um, so we were talking before the break. We had some questions about um, government and specifically to do with a cashless society. So one of the big kind of cases in Africa um, has become um, M-Pesa, which is the ability to pay each other um, using your mobile phone. Um, and banking the unbanked is the most overused term on the planet, um, especially when it comes to here. Um, is that where we're going? Is that, a re- is that a real thing? Mark wants to know. Is a cashless society an actual possibility? Who wants to take that one? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. You'll with, with, with start. Um, you know, there's, there are, uh, is a cash, cashless society a possible thing? There's a large problem in many, or many, many countries uh, with what they call the unbanked. Right. I don't like that term, yeah, yeah. by the way. Sounds uh. terrible. But... There is a large problem with with a lot of people who who don't don't uh, just don't do any kind of banking at all. So they manage in in purely in cash, um, and bringing those people into you know and any kind of an electronic payment system mm. um, is going to remain a challenge for a long time. Uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, there's all kinds of technologies that are advancing in terms of different ways of exchanging value. Um, 
sometimes cash, sometimes different things, but right. exchanging value uh, through electronic means. So we've got, you know, uh, NFC, we've got um, Apple Pay, we've got, you know, all of these different technologies that are emerging. So so when you say, um, let me put it this way, that, that the number of options for people who are digitally engaged to exchange value are increasing significantly. Um, but there is this... A, par- a portion of society that doesn't appear to be have any motivation to change right. uh, that uh, that uh, doesn't seem to want to engage um, for whatever reasons uh, in you know a, a, a digital commerce society. So I think that until they engage, um, I, I don't think that this cashless society is is a possibility. Is a thing. And I think the other aspect here is the degree to which governments across the world are struggling uh, with this concept, um, but in, in, their, in, their, in their local areas, to, to understand what is the impact of, of cashless transactions on, on uh, the areas of government interest. Obviously, from a taxation perspective, of course, um, you know, that, but also in terms of money laundering and fraud and a whole range of, of aspects. And so. The governments, uh, you know, are struggling to work out how do they how do they treat and manage um, mm. these sorts of new forms of you know of, of money, and, sure. uh, and and make sure that you know both their interests in terms of running a country as well as the citizens' interests are protected. Well, and throwing something like a bitcoin and now all of a sudden you know hands throw up in the air, uh, but then we look at Greece, which the banks had to shut down for a couple of days. And, and that was semi-panic. Um, at, at the end of the day, all our money is ones and zeros. It's mm. what we have on a bank statement. We don't physically go to the vault and say, oh, there it is. I can point it anymore. It's just what the bank says we have. If the bank says you have zero, you have zero. <laughs> um, and, and that's why Bitcoin has become such a thing or not a thing. Uh, I suppose every day you, you can see 10 articles saying it's going to be the next evolution. And Ten articles saying it's going to be the death. Uh, it's going to be yet another internet startup tech Napster kind of kind of idea as well. Um, so, but at the end of the day, we're living in the future. I mean, that's that's what kind of it seems to, it seems to boil down to. So, things like autonomous vehicles, um, drones, photography, all of those, um, all of those are, you know, being being kind of being out there. Um, we've seen a lot of kind of these aerial photography of these drones that you can program to take off, follow a certain subject, and land. And you just push push a specific button. Are we going to see autonomous cars in our lifetime, in our roads? Without I, doubt. I think definitely in our lifetime. Do you want to think about that? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. If you told me five years ago that I was going to see autonomous vehicles in my lifetime, I would have laughed at you. Right. Uh, but the degree to which um, you know uh, the developments have proceeded has been truly surprising. And, and you know, we now have autonomous vehicles that can travel at you know, 70 miles an hour safely, um, you know, avoid uh, pedestrians, uh, monitor other ro- uh, vehicles on the road. Uh, and, and we've got trials taking place in pretty much um, uh, you know, in many countries across the world today. So I don't, I don't think uh, it's going to be that long before we see autonomous vehicles being uh, you know, common. But, but, but then, and, and I'm assuming at the same token that governments need to start gearing up for that now from laws, regulations, um, from, from that point of view. Are they doing that? Or are they still struggling with the whole somebody's driving me to work? I, I think they're progressing at different uh, speeds. Okay. So we see you know, in some states within the US uh, enormous advances here. Uh, within Australia, we've got one state that's committed to, to uh, undertaking pilots. Um, so, you know, the, the, the speed will vary sure. uh, across the world. Yeah, Someone's got to go first. Well, it's, it, it's actually interesting. It's an interesting uh, dilemma 
that, that's going on is that obviously governments uh, and regulators want to ensure the safety of the public, which is a good thing. We like that. Yeah, we like that, yes. um, But also they want to attract investment in emerging technologies. We like that too. Uh, <laughs> and what's, what's, um, what's starting to evolve, and particularly in the area of drones, um, is something of a competition between regulators around how they can um, encourage uh, people who are experimenting with drone technology and what they can be used for, encourage them into uh, their jurisdiction, their country, uh, by having lax regulations. So, for example, in the United States, you have the FAA with uh, very strict drone, drone uh, legislation. Um, in the UK, you have less strict drone regulation, more encouragement around uh, drone development. And in the UK, uh, the UK government has licensed 850 uh, organizations to do drone testing and development. Um, and so they're really in, they're creating a drone leadership center or something yeah. like that in London. Uh, and so there, you know, there's, there's something of a competition uh, between yeah. governments around which governments are going to um, attract investment and, and innovation uh, by being more, while still protecting the public, but being more open to how they uh, regulate those kinds of things like autonomous vehicles, drones. Which kind of makes sense, for, if you look at the old kind of tech days, the, those governments which are welcomed um, with tax breaks and, uh, and preferential rates, um, welcome those kind of companies in with open arms, are thriving today. You know, the lack of the Silicon Valleys of the world, um, there's a big resurgence in kind of Dallas and Austin, which the, the, the states are really put, trying to pull, pull people, people in. So I suppose the, company, the governments which are thinking that one step ahead will want to make that, make that play. Are we not worried that you get kind of the um, oldish government who's kind of just wants to hang on to their pension as much as they can before they leave and do these dramatic um, you know, zoning routes for these new tech-finding kids flying the little helicopters around? Are they not going to be a hindrance? They they will be certainly for you know the countries that that where they are based and they have been in the past sure. as you say those countries that are more progressive in terms of encouraging investment in emerging technologies um, have seen tremendous benefits from being able to do that. Um, not all countries do that, uh, and governments certainly um, lag behind in terms of encouraging that investment. Whether that encouraging that investment through is through um, you know uh, minimizing regulation or you know, uh, encouraging investment in the country or developing skills or whatever it happens to be, um, or all of those things, uh, there are certainly countries that um, lead and continue to lead in terms of technology innovation. And uh, there's always opportunities for other countries to, to participate in that. And, and that really is up to the government of each country. And if you want to see uh, you know, a game being played right now that uh, demonstrates this, you only have to look at Uber. Uh, with the experience of Uber in different countries and the degree to which in some countries uh, Uber is allowed to operate normally, in other countries there's enormous resistance to the significant impact on quite uh, well-established uh, business models and significant investments by often, you know, mums and dads who've bought their taxi licence or whatever and now see that entire investment you know, and their home but potentially threatened sure. uh, by, by an Uber business model. And so the degree to which you see these sorts of emerging technologies or technology-enabled business operations challenging uh, established practice is is you know it, it, it's a common problem we you know we've, we've seen that this many times but it can it can be you know uh, quite confronting 
when you see it play out at a personal level, um, but also at the end of the day, we, we know that ultimately uh, society will, will select um, the yeah. most efficient and effective way to solve, to solve a problem. Uh, yeah, uh, um, you touched on that, on, on Uber, and that's kind of my, my, my favourite pet kind of little <laughs> discussion. Um, you know, because, yeah, and just this morning I saw New South Wales um, have now having an issues with Uber, and now they want to start regulating that versus a metered taxi. South Africa, we've got the same issues where, um, you know, Johannesburg or the Gauteng region is treated differently to the Cape region, which is different to the KwaZulu-Natal region. Um, I got here with an Uber, um, and, and you know, to me, it's nothing more convenient stepping off a plane, pushing a button, and within minutes, somebody picks you up and drops you where you need to go. There's no exchange, there's no haggling. This it is what it is. Uh, I, and my kids saying, you know, when we landed at a, a new country or whatever it is, surely we're going to Uber there. There's none of this standing in the queue waiting for a meter taxi and then have the whole discussion in half-broken English. That's no longer a reality that they want to live in. So is the youth kind of going to be driving a lot of that, a lot, a lot of that, and therefore going back to our original discussion, voting into government to say, let us be. We want this, this cool tech stuff. My 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 kids have the exact same perspective. Um, they can't understand why anyone would take a taxi. <laughs> sure. You know, why wouldn't we just go, go Uber, right? And so so they they don't. But of course, you know, I guess they're not they're not considering all of the. Other issues uh, around the licensing system that's existed for decades and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think that um, when you talk about Uber specifically, what they've done is they've introduced a new business model uh, into a market which is quasi-legal. Um, and <laughs> so depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, um, quasi-legal business model. But it is, it's eventually going to get there. Right, right. So one of, one of the things... Uh, you know about Uber is that if I look ten years out into the future, I know where we're going. Yeah. We're going to an Uber type model or on demand. It's just how do we get there? That's right. the only real it's question. A, it's the roadmap. Yeah. I, yeah, I think actually more importantly, we were talking about another concept earlier. This is where we're really headed with Uber, and that's with autonomous autonomous vehicles right. run by Uber. And uh, you know the degree to which that's going to change um, another paradigm, going to present another paradigm. Actually, I was, I was struck by the fact you said you got here on airplanes, so in fact you were flying an autonomous vehicle as well. Okay, you're going to have to explain this. Uh, uh, I so saw a pilot. Uh, <laughs> was pretty, she was quite pretty as well. Uh, so yeah. I think, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the average time from the plane taking off, leaving the ground, to when the pilot turns on the autopilot function uh, is less than a minute. And that's true. Less than 60 seconds. Less than 60 seconds. So about 500 feet off the ground, the pilot will hit the auto. Uh, autopilot function. So you are then travelling on, on, on an autonomous vehicle until such time as you come to land. Uh, so 99% of your flight you were being uh, protected by a computer. I, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I wonder if Uber can take you back to Johannesburg. <laughs> but it's probably safer. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, if we, we, we kind of joke about this whole thing, but Art is technology. Technology able to operate much faster than kind of the human. I mean, we know that for a fact. That's that's not even in dispute anymore. So if we do get to a place where you know a lot of the pilots say it's actually safer up there than it is on the ground because it's all professionals. Everybody knows the rules. Everybody sticks to it. There's no road rage. Nobody's ever. No one in a plane ever cut someone off and give them a finger. Um, you know because everyone's a pro. Everyone's been through training. You got to you got to well night time you gonna know which button to push, which is I don't know. We'll see about that. Um, but it, at the end of the day, let's say if technology gets us to a point where it can protect us better, 
Isn't that a good thing? I mean, you use the word joke, and there is a there is a uh, classical joke amongst pilots, but uh, in, in this context, and that is that uh, in the future there'll only be two li- living organisms in a, in a cockpit, and that'll be the the pilot who'll be charged with keeping an eye on the instruments, and a dog, and the dog is there just to bite his hand if he should happen to reach <laughs> for an instrument. <laughs> so someone's got to feed the dog. Right? <laughs> The chicken or beef, right? <laughs> uh, but but that, but that's what it, that's that's what it, that's what it is. It's it's at the end of the day, um, our problems are going to be the roadmap, is what you're saying. Yeah. How do we get to that level where our autonomous vehicles are on the same road as the road rage lunatic? Um, and, and once we all go autonomous, fine, we understand it. Once we all, but then how to get to there is going to be is going to be where the issues are. And then it's issues for government, issues for people, it's issues for privacy. It's issues all over, all over the place. All over, including liability, insurance, what happens when you get in an accident, whose fault is it, if it's the machine, well, is it's it the a, manufacturer, yeah. is it's, it... It's all these sub-issues. So, let's, so, yes, so whilst my kids want to push a button and get into an Uber, um, and I'm delighted that I can track them all the way home. Uh, you know, people say, no, um, there's a privacy issue. Rather getting into a, a car which got a sticker on it saying taxi or cab, I'd rather be able to watch them all the way home and know that they've arrived home safely. Again, that's my, my view. Someone else might say, I don't want them knowing where, where, where I'm going. I've got the same Uber app on my phone and my wife's phone. If I'm going somewhere I shouldn't be going, she shouldn't know about it. Okay, that's, a, that's, an, that's your problem. Deal with it. Get a virtual credit card. But uh, at the end of the day, that's where we're going. Technology is taking us to those places. The question is, how do we get there? That is the question. And, you know, that's, that's what... Um, uh, business and IT leaders are going to struggle with um, over the next few years is, is the roadmap. How do we get to that place where we know we're ultimately going to get to? I think that, you know, the other issue is that uh, this is going to cause tremendous social disruption um, as well. So getting there, we know what the, well, we know what the next sort of waypoint in the right. road is, um, but the issues in getting there and the issues once we're there in terms of what happens when all the people who are employed as drivers, um, now their jobs sure. become redundant. Um, and you know, a lot of different uh, pilots, um, you know, people a, lot of industries. Are, a lot of industries, a lot of white-collar jobs are going to be becoming uh, redundant in, in the future. And so I think that, you know, there is there is some questions that have to be yeah, answered around how do, we, how do we manage uh, people to, be, to ensure that people are productive in society when um, technology is, is automating them out of a lot of jobs. I guess I worry a bit. We often with uh, emerging and new technology, we spend a lot of time talking about you know the, the negative sides, and people focus on that a lot in the discussion. Well, you know, it's you know you're talking about cloud. People worry about security and privacy and such things. And but but in fact, I think you know it's worthwhile also looking at what's the positive uh, component. I mean, we were talking about IoT earlier, and in there enormous number of examples about how um, cities around the world have adopted smart city-based programs to improve the, you know, the performance of their city, the efficiency of the city, um, you know, the utilisation of assets. I mean, I was reading just uh, a few days ago about uh, Los Angeles and traffic control. Um, do you believe this is a 15-square uh, block within Los Angeles um, where there are uh, where 30% of the cars in that 15-square block are driving around for the sole purpose of looking for a parking Parking. space. And, and, uh, you know, by implementing some um, uh, uh, IoT-based advice, you know, mobile-based advice, uh, monitoring available parking spaces, um, they've managed to reduce the 
amount of miles travelled by over a million miles uh, amongst those cars, save 50,000 gallons of petrol per year, uh, and actually increase the revenue for the parking garages. So a win all over the place. It, indeed. Even the planet gets to win. Right. <laughs> All right, guys, I think this kind of wraps it, wraps it up. I mean, an hour does fly past quite quickly when we've got so many various topics to, to, to discuss. So thank you very much for taking time out of your keynotes and your presentations to come in and chat to us. Um, I suppose that's what Gardner's is all about. It's exactly that, understanding the roadmap, understanding the vision, finding out what the next horizon is and how to get there. And then when you get to that horizon, well, it's going to be another horizon, and you've got to get to that one too. All right, um, guys, thank you very much for popping in. Thanks and right. that, that wraps it up for uh, another episode of Talking Tech with the Techie Guy. Get a hold of me at Liron underscore S-E-G-E-V or thetechieguy.com. So you can check out the blog, some articles there. Um, and otherwise, um, Talking Tech is sponsored by MTN Business. Why do we need, what do we need just about more anything in today's digital world? is to protecting our data. Well, MTN Business has the solution, something that can look after your bottom line, grow your top line, and safeguard your data. That's MTN Business Cloud. MTN Business Cloud has been created to build and is powered by the world-leading cloud solution from Microsoft. Big and small businesses can benefit from true hybrid solutions leveraging MTN's global network. For more information, email sales at mtnbusiness.co.za or visit mtnbusiness.co.za. Welcome to the new world of business. I've just landed a big Pan-African contract, but setting up new ICT infrastructure isn't as easy as it is in South Africa. How can I give my other offices the same capabilities? You need MTN Business Cloud, powered by Microsoft Technology. Our hybrid cloud solution offers on-demand computing resources, reduced infrastructure costs, and service across our global MPLS network covering 23 countries. Isn't it time you found out about the cloud solution built to build African businesses? Welcome to the new world of business. Cliffcentral.com.